Well, I do ask you to turn once again in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. And last week we focused on the first two verses of that chapter, and I just reread them. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Here we were reminded of the unmitigated malice that the enemies of Jesus had toward him. Their hatred, we saw, was rather continuous. From early on in the ministry of Jesus, his light clashed with their darkness and they opposed him. We saw that their hatred of him was crafty. They were deceitful in their planning against him. They weren't forthright. They weren't honest in coming out against Jesus. But they were determined to kill him, but not while the people were in Jerusalem for the feast, but when they went home. They were crafty in their plotting against Jesus. And we saw that they were also cowardly in their plotting against Jesus. Rather than coming out forthrightly, and expressing their opposition to Jesus. They wanted to wait till the people left town, and then they were to do him in. It was the fear of man. They didn't love God. They didn't love their neighbor. They were concerned only to protect their own name, their own power, their own protection. And so their opposition was continuous. It was crafty, and it was cowardly. They did succeed in killing Jesus, as we well know but not according to their timetable. Remember, they said, not during the festival. We don't want to do it when there are a lot of people around. They killed Jesus, but not according to their timetable. Why? Because God had a different plan. It was the intention of God to have Jesus die, but to die during the Passover feast. Why? Because God wanted to make a statement. He wanted to make a statement that my son is the true and final Lamb of God whose sacrifice of himself really takes away sin. He's the climax to all of the Passover lambs that Israel had sacrificed through the centuries. He's the final sacrifice. He's the complete sacrifice. He puts an end to the whole sacrificial system. Now, note the timetable with me here, though. It says that the Passover and unleavened bread is two days away. That was Tuesday Thursday would be the Passover. On Friday, Jesus would be killed. Now, what follows in our text is verses 3 to 9. That's our text for this morning. Let me read that. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you have always have the poor with you. And wherever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Now, let me take a minute to turn you 
to John's version of this. Now, I don't do that a lot because, you see, Mark, each of the Gospels wrote what they wrote for a reason, and they left out what they left out for a reason. And so I'm not trying to preach all the Gospels, but I'm trying to give you Mark's version. But it's, it's helpful here to take a peek at, at what John writes as he records this same incident. And so I'm reading a few verses from John 12, the same incident from John's perspective. We read in John 12, 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. That's typical of Martha, right? The servant. And, and but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him, the one Jesus had just raised from the dead. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. One, two more verses. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was the perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, John includes some things that, that Mark doesn't, and he has a reason for that. John tells us that it was Mary who actually did this anointing. Why doesn't Mark include that? Well, commentators speculate that maybe because John wrote much later, Mary was alive while Mark was writing, and maybe it would have jeopardized her in terms of persecution to include her name. So Mark doesn't mention, he just says a woman. John gives the name Mary. Mark says that some people were grumbling. John tells us that it was Judas who instigated the complaining. But what I really want to call your attention to is we just read in John that this anointing of Jesus happened six days before the Passover. That was on Saturday. Now, what we read in verses 1 and 2 of, John, of Mark 14 was just two days before the fa Passover. But Mark here is clearly not trying to be chronological. After this, he reaches back to something that happened several days before. Now, he doesn't have to be chronological. Why does he give this particular story at this particular time after talking about how his enemies were insidiously planning Jesus' death? Commentators speculate that the purpose was for contrast. Mark is showing the stark contrast between the way that Jesus was treated by his enemies and the way that Jesus deserved to be treated, and we might say continues to deserve to be treated. The religious leaders expressed the deepest dye of hatred for Jesus. We've got to rid the earth of Jesus. We've got to get rid of him. And they, they're the ones who should have known better. They were the leaders of the people. They should have known most about God. They should have uh, known most about the word of God. They should have known most about the promises of the coming Messiah. But they were the ones who committed the worst crime imaginable in killing the Son of God. But here, in our text for this morning, we have this account that expresses the greatest depth of love and devotion to Jesus. What he received from the religious leaders, hatred, plotting his death, and now what he deserves, the all-out devotion of this woman who anoints him with oil. William Hendrickson, the commentator, says that the hideous degradation of the religious leaders is contrasted with the wholehearted devotion of this woman, which we happen to know was Mary. Well, from the text, I want us to see three things. The display and devotion to Jesus by this woman, 
the disapproval of that display of devotion by some, and we know that Judas was the ringleader, and then the defense of this display of devotion by Jesus. So the display of devotion to Jesus. The first thing we want to see is that the display of devotion was costly. Now, the scene is at the home of a certain Simon of Bethany. He's called Simon the leper. Now, it doesn't appear that he's a leper at this time, but he probably was a leper that Jesus had healed. And it says that the guests were reclining at table. I think many of you know that in that day, they didn't sit at a table like we do, a high table with chairs. The table was low, and they reclined on their left side, leaning on their left elbow. Unless, I guess, they were left-handed. I don't know. That would have been... But I'm sure glad we do it the way we do it now, right? My body's not all that flexible, and I'd rather eat sitting down, sitting up, rather than reclining on my side. But that's the way they did it. They reclined at table. And at one point, a woman gets up and approaches Jesus from behind him, and she has an alabaster. This would have been a vial or small vase of white or delicately tinted fine-grained gypsum. And in that alabaster was perfume made from nard. That was the plant from which the essence of this perfume was extracted. And it was said to be pure nard. It's, it's unadulterated. It's genuine. It's good stuff. And the woman, we're told, broke the vial. That means she would have broken the neck off of it. And because it couldn't be put back in, it would have evaporated quickly. Once you break the neck, the, uh, of the vial, you have to use the whole thing. And so she pours the whole thing upon Jesus. But what is most noteworthy worthy here about the perfume is that it was costly. Mark uses the Greek word paluteles, and it means precious, very costly. Just as a little aside for you women, it's the word used that word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 3, 4, when he says a gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in God's sight. Something just for you to tuck away, ladies. Gentle and quiet spirit. And you know, I always like to say, that doesn't mean you have to be a quiet personality. You can be a quiet woman. You can be a vivacious, bubbly woman. But he's saying the gentle and quiet spirit is what is precious in God's sight. That word is also used in 1 Peter 1.7 to speak of the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which is perishable. And very interestingly, that word precious is used in the parable Jesus told in Matthew 13, the parable of the pearl of great price or great value. It says in that parable, Matthew 13, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, there's our word, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's a good parallel to our passage here. Precious perfume on the precious pearl, Jesus. How valuable was this perfume? Well, the complainers said she should have sold it for 300 denarius worth of money. Now, many of you know that a denarius was about a day's wage. 300 denarii is about a year's salary. And in our economy, that's tens of thousands of dollars. So this was a very costly ointment or perfume that she poured out upon Jesus. And you might ask, well, how did this woman, whom we know to be Mary, come upon this great treasure? And commentators speculate that it may have been an heirloom. It may have been something that was passed on from generation to generation. But one thing we know, the tradition ended there. 
because in one fell swoop, one little tip of her wrist, she poured the whole thing out upon Jesus. Her devotion to him was so deep. Her reverence for him was so great. She valued him so highly that Jesus was worth the pouring out of all of this earthly treasure. Now, the anointing with oil was a custom of that day. Uh, it was customary that when you came as a guest to a home, first of all, your feet would be dusty. You'd be wearing sandals and your feet would be dusty. And so the servant in the house would, would wash your dusty feet and anoint your head with oil. Oil was a symbol of gladness. Proverbs 27, 9, oil and perfume make the heart glad. And remember how Jesus in Luke 7 reproves a certain, another Simon the Pharisee who did not show Jesus that common courtesy. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. It was a common custom uh, to do that. But that was just probably regular olive oil. She's anointing him not with just common olive oil. She's anointing him with, with a treasure that's worth tens of thousands of dollars, at least in our day. It was a lavish anointing. That's the point. The display of devotion was costly. Nothing was too great to expend on Jesus in the eyes of this woman. And we can hardly imagine a starker contrast between the enemies of Jesus and this woman, right? They were literally treating Jesus like the scum of the earth. We need to get rid of him. He's not worthy to live. We need to dispatch him. In contrast to this lavish display of love and devotion in an act of utter abandonment of adoration and worship of Jesus by this woman. So her display of affection for Jesus in pouring out this perfume was costly. She parted with something of great value, could have been a great earthly treasure and earthly usefulness if it had been sold. But not only was the display costly, the display of devotion by this woman was public and unashamed. She was no secret disciple. She did not shrink back from displaying her loving devotion to Christ in a public setting. It was an unashamed display. She wasn't overwhelmed with self-consciousness. She wasn't overcome with thoughts of what are people going to think of me? She wasn't crippled and hindered in her act by fear of public censure, even though she had some right to be. I mean, they did censure her. The disciples did criticize her. It did not bother her. She didn't care. She was so consumed with the glory of Jesus Christ, so overcome with a sense of his worthiness, so grateful for what he had done for her. He had no doubt saved her soul, since we know it was Mary. He had given her back his, her beloved brother Lazarus, and she was so filled with the glory of Jesus and gratitude toward Jesus, she didn't care what other people thought. Her act of devotion was public. It was unashamed. Now, someone might say, if you're familiar with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, wait a minute, we're not supposed to do public acts of righteousness, right? Didn't Jesus say we're not to display our righteousness in front of people? We're not to pray in front of people. We're not to uh, give in front of people that they can see. We're not to show people that we're fasting. And she's doing this public display of devotion, but everything depends on the context. Back in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. It's not the public act that is wrong. 
It's not wrong for you to pray in public. We, we, want, we, we pray publicly. We want men and women to lead us in public prayer. That's not wrong in itself. What is wrong? The motive. They do it to be seen by men. It's wrong to do it to impress other people with your righteousness. That's the problem with public displays. But that was not the case with this woman. You see, in another place, Matthew 10, Jesus says, Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. You see, what this woman was doing was not the opposite of humble, God-fearing secrecy. It was the opposite of man-fearing cowardice. And here again, stark contrast between this woman and the enemies of Jesus. They were crippled with the fear of man. They were afraid of the people. We want to dispatch him, but not during the feast. Wait till the people get out of town. Then we'll do it. They were cowardly. They they had the fear of man. Not this woman. She didn't care what people thought. She didn't withhold her act of devotion based on the frowns or smiles of other people. And so her display of devotion to Jesus was costly. It was public in a praiseworthy sense, open, unashamed. But then consider the disapproval of that display of devotion. We see that in verses 4 and 5. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? This perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. As soon as they saw her break that vial and pour that whole thing upon Jesus' head, they obviously had some sense of the the value of it. And they had a stunned reaction. You probably could have seen it in their contorted faces. You certainly heard it in their grumbling words. They were indignant. That word indignant is used of the way Jesus felt when children were coming to him and the disciples were forbidding them. And Jesus was indignant over that. It was used of the Pharisees when in the temple, the children were saying to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. It made them angry. It made them indignant. What is indignation? It's a form of anger in the face of something that you sense is wrong and inappropriate. And in their indignation, it says they were scolding her. Literally, they were snorting at her like a horse snorts. And that word is used in John 11 when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus. Most of our Bibles say something like he was deeply moved. But a lot of commentators, translators say that's too weak. He was moved with anger. He was like a snorting horse. He was angry with the death that had taken his friend and the death that had interfered in his father's creation. That's the word used of Jesus coming to the tomb. He was snorting like a horse, moved with anger. And these people were moved with anger. They were scolding her in her indignation. Why? What was the rationale for the disapproval that they expressed. Why was this cringeworthy to them? They saw her do that and they cringed. We cringe at certain things. If you're in a restaurant and you hear this big crash and you see that the waiter holding a tray of food, especially food that hasn't yet been served, and you hear this big crash 
You cringe over what just happened. And this was cringeworthy for them. One tilt of this woman's wrist over Jesus' head, and all of that precious ointment was gone. And they were indignant. Why? Because it says it was a waste. That word means it's ruined, it's destroyed, it, it is perished. The perfume's ruined. It could have been used for a good purpose, sold and given to the poor, but, but it's wasted. And these disciples knew that God cares about the poor. The Old Testament is filled with God's concern for the poor. God would not let his people Israel glean to the end of their fields, save a little bit for the poor. He protected, he didn't let his people charge interest to people so that they wouldn't come to poverty. He warned throughout the Proverbs and throughout the Bible against oppression of the poor. You mess with the poor, you're going to have God to deal with. God will judge you. God cares for the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized. And so the disciples knew that. And so instead of selling it and giving to the poor, they pour it on Jesus. And so their thinking is, this has been wasted on Jesus. Wait a minute. Wasted on Jesus. Something about that doesn't sound right, does it? Doesn't sound right. Were they really concerned about the poor? Well, the real reason for the disapproval is exposed, not by Mark, but I just turn you again to John. I don't want to do this often, but John tells us, was really behind their indignation. Not, not a sincere concern for the poor. But back to John 12, verses 4 to 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So we know that Judas was the scoundrel who was really behind this complaining. It wasn't a real sincere concern for the poor. It was because he was a greedy man. But because Mark doesn't develop that, I'm not going to develop it either. But let's go to the final point. The defense of this display of devotion by Jesus. So you get the picture. This woman gives this lavish display of devotion, pours out this whole vial worth a year's salary on Jesus' head, and the disciples, led by Jesus, they recoil with indignation. They scold her. Wait a minute, you've wasted that perfume. Could have been sold and the money given to the poor. What does Jesus do? How does Jesus respond? His response is very revealing. I mean, he's the center of the controversy here. He's the one uh, at issue here. Might we expect the Lord Jesus to, to demur and maybe be embarrassed that this lavish display of of attention is, and devotion is being given to him. Might he not even gently correct her? You know, Jesus is capable of gently correcting people. He had corrected Martha, remember, in, in uh, Luke chapter 10. Might he not have corrected her that, Mary, you're well-intended, but this was an unwise use of this valuable ointment. Jesus cared about the poor. His whole ministry nearly was devoted to the poor, to the marginalized people of society, right? The blind, the crippled, the lame. He once told a man, if you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven, you better sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me. He said, when you have a banquet, when you have a party, don't invite your, your wealthy cronies and colleagues, but, but invite 
the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind to the banquet. Jesus cared about the poor. Might he not have deflected attention from himself and said, dear woman, you really should have sold this and given it to the poor. But he doesn't do that. He rushes to her defense. Verses 6 to 9. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus doesn't deflect the attention and the devotion. He accepts it. Why? Not because he wasn't humble. Jesus is meek and lowly in heart. But brothers and sisters, humility is never at war with truth. And the fact is, Jesus is and was God in human flesh. And to him, all glory and all praise and all honor and all devotion is due. And the fact that he did not deflect this, this lavish act of devotion from himself is an affirmation of who he is as the second person of the Trinity and the only savior of sinners. How did Jesus defend this woman? In several ways. First of all, he defended what she did as a good deed. You see that in verse 6? She has done a good deed for me. Let her alone. Permit her. Why are you troubling her? Why are you indignant grumblers trying to make her feel guilty for something she should not feel guilty about? She has done a good deed to me. And when Jesus calls it a good deed, he means it's good in every way. It was quantitatively good. She gave the proper amount. It wasn't excessive. It wasn't fanatical. It wasn't eccentric. And pouring out that whole expensive uh, vile perfume, it was quantitatively good. When Jesus calls it good, it's also qualitatively good. Jesus looks at the heart, and he knew this woman's heart. It wasn't done to impress other people. It was done to honor and glorify him. It was quantitatively good. It was qualitatively good. According to that word good, kalos in the Greek, it was thoroughly noble, acceptable, proper, becoming, suitable, admirable, even has the hint of beautiful. What she's done to me, for me, is beautiful. Don't try to correct her. He defended it as a good deed. He defended it as a timely deed. A deed is not only good by its moral rightness and appropriateness and by its motive, but by its timeliness. It was timely. The proverb says, how delightful is a timely word. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no rotten communication come out of your mouth, but that which is good for edification, according to the need of the moment that it might impart grace to those who hear. Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. See, there's a right time and a wrong time to do certain things. And it seems that this woman understood better than the disciples that Jesus wasn't going to be with them much longer. And now was the appropriate time to 
display this act of devotion a week later might be too late. And so her deed was not only a good deed, it was a timely deed. And he defended it as a sufficient deed. The first part of verse 8, she has done what she could. Literally in the Greek, she did what she had. And the idea here is that she had taken this opportunity to do something for Jesus, and she did what her resources and opportunity afforded. She did it to the limit of her ability. Now, there is a strict sense in which we never do enough, right? In Luke 17, Jesus gives a parable that says, we're always unprofitable slaves. We never do enough. There is a ridiculous Roman Catholic doctrine. It's called the works of supererogation or donum superoditum. It says that there are certain saints who've done more good than they needed to get into heaven. And so they got some leftover that can be given to others. That is so far from the Bible. When we have done everything, Jesus said, we've only done what was expected of us. So there's a sense in which we almost never do enough. We certainly never do more than enough. But Jesus says she's done what she could. She did what she had. There's another sense in which we come away from some situations. Don't you? I know I do. And we say, you know, I, I could have done more. I should have done more. I should have said more. Do you come away sometimes with a gnawing conscience from a situation or an opportunity to minister? I didn't do enough. I didn't speak enough. I didn't say enough. And then there are other times, and I trust this is true of you, where you come away and said, you know, I have a good conscience. I think I did everything God wants me to do in this situation. And so Jesus is, is saying she's done a sufficient deed. She made the best use that she could of the resources that she had, and he approves her. It was a good deed. It was a timely deed. It was a sufficient deed. He defended it as a purposeful deed. Second half of verse 8 she has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Now, commentators are disagreed. Did she know that Jesus was headed for death? Some commentators think, well, no, she just did this good deed, and Jesus interpreted it as uh, anointing for his burial. But surprisingly, some very respectable commentators think that, no, Mary had a sense that Jesus was soon going to die. I mean, as we studied the Gospel of Mark, doesn't Jesus repeatedly try to get it through the thick skulls of his disciples? I'm going to be delivered up to the chief priests and elders. I'm going to die. And after three days, Mark 8.31, he tells them. Mark 9.31, Mark 10.33, he's telling them over and over again. And since we know this was Mary, remember what was true of Mary from Luke chapter 10? Mary Martha. She was the one who was seated at Jesus' feet listening to him. While Martha was scurrying about and needed to be gently corrected by Jesus, Mary was a tender disciple. Mary was a good listener. And it could well be that Mary discerned what the disciples did not. Jesus is going to die soon. The opposition is heating up. And maybe she even read Jesus. Maybe she even read the holy anxiety in our Lord who knew his hour was coming. I say this as a tribute to womanhood. Women can be sensitive to things that we as men are not. Some years ago, my wife and I were meeting with a certain Amish bishop, 
who was a professing Christian. And I was saying some things to him that were making him uncomfortable. But I don't think I knew that. But when we left, my wife said, did you see how nervous he was? Well, how do you know? His neck was turning red. <laughs> Didn't you see that? I said, no. <laughs> and some have said that God have, has given women a sense of sensitivity. They can even sense a, a rash in a child. And God has given women some sensibilities he's not given to us as men. And I say this as a credit to womankind, that maybe Mary had some insight that the others did not have. And then he defended it as a memorial deed. He says in verse 9, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. See, Jesus looks beyond his death. Wherever the gospel is preached? You mean there's going to be good news? Yes, there's news beyond his death. He's going to be raised. He's going to be glorified. He's going to send his spirit. There's going to be a gospel. And wherever that gospel is preached, you're going to hear about what this woman has done. Well, here we are in 2022, and we're reading about what this woman did a couple thousand years ago, right? Okay, well, this is a portion of Scripture very rich in application. I want to take our remaining minutes and just make some applications to us. First, from this passage, recognize the glorious nature of the person of Jesus Christ. You see, for Jesus of Nazareth to receive with strong affirmation this expression of devotion and worship, this woman pouring out this costly vial of perfume upon his head, and he welcomed it and he rebuked those who were indignant. For him to receive that devotion, friends, it leaves us with only two options as to who Jesus was, and they are extreme options. Number one, either Jesus was an extremely arrogant, egotistical, narcissistic, mortal man with an incredibly inflated sense of his own superiority over his fellow mortals, or he is more than a mere mortal man, more than a human teacher, but he is whom he consistently claimed to be, the Son of God and God the Son. That's your choice. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that, that's the only choice God has given you. Now, we who are Christians believe that he is God the Son. That's why we believe him when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. That's why we believe him when he says in John 8, 24, Therefore I said to you, to his enemies, that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, and he takes the divine name from Exodus 3, 14, unless you believe that, that, that I am, Yahweh, you will die in your sins. So if you're sitting here this morning and you are not converted, you are not a committed follower of Jesus, my friend, I call you to be intellectually honest about who Jesus is. These are your choices. Hate him as a lying imposter. Pity him as an insane man who thought he was God but really wasn't. Or join the rest of us and bow down and worship him as the Savior of sinners and the Lord of glory. And I would beg of you to not take the first two options because they're not true, but to take the third. Join us. 
trusting Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the Lord of your life. He will only do you good and he will one day take you to be with himself. So that's the first thing. Recognize the glorious nature of the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, recognize the surpassing value of serving and serving and honoring Jesus Christ with your life. What does this woman do? She pours out her most precious possession upon Jesus. Everybody else says, that's a waste. She says, no, it isn't. It's the best use I could make of my treasure. And I ask you, as I ask myself, what do you value most? How do you know? How do you know what you value most? There are ways. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? What occupies your conversations? How do you use your words? Who do you keep company with? And to probe most deeply, what occupies your thoughts? You see, we have only one life to live. We're going to give account to God for how we have lived. For the majority of us, we are redeemed. And the good news is now we can live meaningful lives. We can do good deeds. As we saw in the previous hour, before we were Christians, we could not do one good deed. Jesus said in Matthew 12, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. We were once rotten trees, right? And we couldn't bear good fruit. Rotten tree couldn't bear good fruit. Nothing we did was good before we were Christians. Bad tree, bad fruit. By the grace of God, we've become good trees. And what does Jesus say for by, or through Paul? For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good deeds. So we are able to do good deeds, pleasing to the Lord. Like this woman's act was pleasing to the Lord. We can do good deeds. We can lay up treasure in heaven. What's a good deed? I was trying to think of my three R's at home group, and I couldn't think of it, but I, I got it now. You know, you want to know what a good deed is? Three R's. A deed that is done according to the right rule, the word of God. A good deed is when you obey what God says and is good in his word, a right rule. Second R is right resources. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. We do good, not by our own ability and strength, but as the grace of God works in us. Right rule, right resources, and a right reason, namely a right motive. Proverbs 16, 2, all a man's ways are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the motives or the spirits. We can do good deeds, obey God's word, depend on his grace to work in you, and do it for the right reason, not to impress people, but to please God. And so let's live lives of good deeds. Let's obey the word of God. Let's draw upon his grace and do what we do out of love for God and love for neighbor and not love for ourselves. Here's a third application. Serve Jesus with the best of all that you are and have. That woman gave the best, didn't she? She gave it all, and she was commended. We need to give our best to Jesus. How? Give the best years of your life to Jesus. You who are young, give your best years. Give the, the years of your youth to serving Christ. God has saved many of you in your youth. Praise God for that. Serve him in your youth. Learn humility. Learn servanthood in the context of your home. You young men and some young women, learn a vocation. Learn a skill that will prepare you to be a good provider for a wife and 
We're a family. Learn how to serve. Study the Bible now. Your memory muscle is strong. The older we get, the weaker the brain cells die. The memory muscle is, is weaker. Memorize big chunks of the Bible while you're young. Your memory is strong. The memory muscle is strong. Give him the best years of your life. Give him the young years of your life. We all need to give to Jesus the best time of our day. We're called to meet with him in the word and prayer. Give him the best time of your day. For many of us, that's the morning, not for everybody. Give him the best time of your day when your mind is most alert to drink in his word and to pray to him. Give him the best time of your day and give the best resources that you have. What do you have that is in, needs to be in the service of Jesus? Has God given you a nice home? Don't just enjoy it for yourself. Open it up to hospitality. And so many of you do that so well. Has God given you spiritual gifts? He's given all of us spiritual gifts. Every one of us. We are, every church is a true charismatic community. Do you know that? Charis means gift. Every church is gifted. Every believer is gifted. And we need to be all hands on deck using our gifts to the max for the building up of the church, for the winning of the lost to the glory of Christ. Whatever financial resources he's given you, God has blessed some of you especially. Use those financial resources to underwrite the work of the kingdom of God. This woman gave her best. We need to give our best to Jesus. Next, serve Jesus Christ in an unashamed way. She didn't care what people thought. I'm doing this. I don't care what Judas thinks. I don't care what the disciples think. I'm doing this publicly unashamed. We need to be unashamed. And talking about Jesus to people, we need to be unashamed. And, you know, I keep reminding this, uh, reminding of you of this because we need it. We're living in a day when we're post-Christian and Christianity is not esteemed. And by holding the things that we hold, you and I will be considered moral and spiritual dinosaurs. You still believe that? You still believe that there are only two genders? You still believe that marriage is only between a man and a woman? You believe that any sexual activity outside the bounds of the covenant union of marriage between a man and a woman is sexual perversion, immorality, and will send people to hell? Yes. You need to be bold and unashamed, loving and gracious, Unashamed. Jesus said, who is ashamed of me and my words? I will be ashamed of him when I come in my Father's glory. And I want to keep reminding us in this day, persecution is ratcheting up. That we need to be unashamed of the words of Jesus. She was unashamed. He's my Lord. This is not a waste. He deserves everything, and I'm giving it all to him. And then serve Jesus Christ in a timely way. This woman did the right thing at the right time. She only had a small window of opportunity, and she seized it to do what she could. And there are some doors that are only open for a short time. Galatians 6.10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Ephesians 5.16, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Some people cross our paths for only a short time. We need to make the most of it. Sometimes we have people who are dying in the hospital. And I say, you want to have a good conscience, you get over there and you plead with them to come to Christ before they close their eyes in death. Sometimes we have only a small window and we need to make the most of it. And then serve Jesus in a priority way. She cared about Jesus more than the poor, but so did Jesus. Yes, we care about the poor. So did Jesus, but he came first. 
You know, when God sums up the law of God in two commandments, there's a priority. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, he who loves father or mother, son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There are a lot of people we love, but we ought to love none beyond our love for Jesus Christ. She loved Jesus with a priority love, and ours needs to be the same. Pray, and we'll come to the supper. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this portion of your word and what it teaches us. We thank you that you have seen fit to honor this expression of devotion from this woman we know to be Mary. Give us grace to imitate her in her wholehearted devotion to you, Lord Jesus. We ask in your name.